Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. I'm your host, Phil Williams, and tonight I have a shocking but true story for you. Much of this information comes from G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, my own book, The Propaganda Project, and various quotes and writings from statesmen and military men. Let's get into the story. The Lusitania. Wars are a huge part of the history that is taught in schools, shown in movies, and glorified in our culture. Central bankers benefit from war as they finance both sides, further indebting governments and taxpayers in their web. Governments benefit from war as they can increase their size and control, their fascist partners in the quasi-private sector can profit, and they can increase the patriotism and devotion of the public. As Walter Benjamin said, history is written by the victors. Let's examine war from the side of the losers, the casualties of war. Specifically, let's examine the catalyst for the American entry into World War I, which was the sinking of the HMS Lusitania. It's a story with intrigue, corruption, treachery, propaganda, and tragedy. War brings profits to the banks in the form of debt. It is not exactly war that bankers love, but the debt brought about by war. The only rain on this debt parade comes in the form of a default, and default was what the European and American bankers were facing in World War I. During World War I, England and France went heavily into debt, so heavy in fact that the European banks could not meet their needs. The Allies turned to America and the House of Morgan, in partnership with the Rothschild European banking dynasty, to act as sales agents for their bonds. The majority of the bond money raised for the Allies was quickly returned to purchase war materials brokered by the House of Morgan. The House of Morgan made money coming and going, a commission when a bond was sold and another commission when the money was used to purchase war materials. Many of the companies producing the war materials were either outright owned by Morgan holding companies or within their banking sphere of control. The first contact was in January of 1915 with the British Army Council for $12 million worth of horses. The House of Morgan was brokering deals of up to $10 million per day, and total purchases would eventually reach $3 billion. At the time, they were the biggest consumer on earth, presiding over purchases equal to the gross national product of the entire world a generation before. For the House of Morgan and the European bankers, there was one big problem. The Germans were winning the war and the specter of default loomed large. The Germans had developed the submarine, and their fleet of 21 U-boats were cutting off supplies to the Allies. The U-boats were technological marvels at the time, but they were constantly being repaired and serviced. There was only a maximum of seven at sea at any one time. Despite their lack of reliability, they were deadly. Between 1914 and 1918, the German submarines sunk 5,700 ships. Every week, 300,000 tons of Allied shipping were sent to the bottom of the Atlantic. One out of every four ships to leave England never returned. Arthur Balfour, British Foreign Secretary, wrote, At that time, it certainly looked as though we were going to lose the war. Robert Farrell, author of Wilson and World War I, agreed with Balfour. He wrote, The Allies approached the brink of disaster with no recourse other than to ask Germany for terms. William McAdoo, Secretary of the Treasury and Woodrow Wilson's son-in-law, wrote in his memoir, Across the sea came the dismay of the British, a dismay that carried a deepening note of disaster. There was a fear and a well-grounded one, 
that England might be starved into abject surrender. On April 27, 1917, Ambassador Walter H. Page reported confidentially to the President that the food in the British Isles was not more than enough to feed the civil population for six weeks or two months. With the Allies against the ropes, the House of Morgan couldn't find new buyers for the war bonds. Without buyers for new funding, or buyers of the old bonds that were coming due, they were facing default. For the bankers, this was disastrous. If bond sales stopped, the gravy train of bonds and war material commissions would also stop. Furthermore, if the old bonds went into default, the investors would lose a tremendous amount of money. Something had to be done. That something was an American entry into World War I. Through a secret agreement brokered by Woodrow Wilson advisor and puppeteer Colonel Edward Mandel House, the United States committed to enter the war. House had close ties to J.P. Morgan and the European banking families. He was the inside man pulling the strings of the U.S. government in favor of the central bankers. The secret agreement wasn't enough to propel the staunchly neutral United States into war. E.M. House, the Wilson administration, and the bankers needed public support. They began to beat the war drum in the Morgan-controlled press. In 1917, on the congressional floor, Representative Calloway of Texas summed up the Morgan influence. In March 1915, the J.P. Morgan interests, the steel, shipbuilding, and powder interests, and their subsidiary organizations got together 12 men high up in the newspaper world and employed them to select the most influential newspapers in the United States and sufficient number of them to control generally the policy of the daily press. They found it was only necessary to purchase the control of 25 of the greatest papers. An agreement was reached, the policy of the papers was bought to be paid for by the month. An editor was furnished for each paper to properly supervise and edit information regarding the questions of preparedness, militarism, financial policies, and other things of national and international nature considered vital to the interests of the purchasers. With Morgan in control of the press, they spewed war propaganda daily. They denounced Germany as the enemy of Western civilization. They appealed to the patriotic duty of all Americans to defend world democracy. Despite the propaganda, it was not enough. Polls at the time showed little support to enter the war. They needed something extra. They needed something extreme, something that would change public opinion. The Lusitania was a British passenger ship that often steamed between New York and Liverpool. She was the property of the Cunard Company, the only major competitor of the Morgan shipping cartel. The Lusitania was built as a luxury liner, but her specifications were drawn up by the British Admiralty so she could be converted into a warship. The shape of her hull, the horsepower of her engines, ammunition storage areas, among other features, were paid for by the British government. Even in peacetime, her crew included naval officers and seamen. In May of 1913, the Lusitania was outfitted with extra armor, revolving gun rings on her decks, shell racks for ammunition, and handling elevators to lift the shells. Part of the retrofit involved removing passenger accommodations in the lower deck to make space for more war materials. On March 8, 1915, after several close calls with German submarines, the captain of the Lusitania turned in his resignation. He was willing to face the U-boats, he said. 
but he was no longer willing to carry the responsibility of mixing passengers with munitions or contraband. England needed the Americans to win the war. Winston Churchill, who was the first lord of the Admiralty, had a ruthless strategy for enticing the Americans. Cruiser rules dictated that both England and Germany would allow the crews of merchant ships to depart on lifeboats before sinking them. In October of 1914, Churchill ordered merchant ships to no longer surrender to Germany. They were to engage if they had weapons and try to ram the U-boats. In response to this policy, the U-boats stayed submerged and sunk ships without warning. Thousands of seamen lost their lives because of Churchill's cunning calculation, of which he said, The first British countermove made on my responsibility was to deter the Germans from surface attack. The submerged U-boat had to rely increasingly on underwater attack, and thus ran the greater risk of mistaking neutral for British ships and drowning neutral crews and thus embroiling Germany with other great powers. The Lusitania was indeed carrying war materials, 600 tons of gun cotton, 6 million rounds of ammunition, 1,248 cases of shrapnel shells, plus an unknown quantity of munitions that filled the lower decks. These weapons were all brokered through the House of Morgan. Unfortunately, for the civilians that booked a ticket on the Lusitania, they were unaware that their cruise liner was carrying war materials. The German embassy, on the other hand, was well aware of the munitions being loaded on the Lusitania. They filed a formal complaint with the U.S. government, stating that the munitions were a violation of international neutrality treaties. The Wilson administration denied any knowledge of the munitions. The Germans tried to warn the American public by purchasing week-long ads in 50 newspapers the week before the Lusitania was set to sail. The U.S. State Department intervened, ensuring that the ads were never run. One ad did slip through the propaganda model and was printed in the Des Moines Register. The ad was placed in the travel section next to an advertisement and departure schedule for the Lusitania. It read, Notice, travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that, in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or of any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters and that travelers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C., April 22, 1915. The Lusitania left New York on May 1, 1915, with orders to meet the Juno, a British destroyer, off the coast of Ireland for protection as the cruise liner entered U-boat-infested waters. When the Lusitania arrived at the meeting point, the Juno was not there. The captain of the Lusitania thought that they had missed each other in the fog. The truth was that the Juno had been called out of the area, and the captain of the Lusitania was not informed. To add insult to injury, the Lusitania was ordered to cut back on coal usage, not because of a shortage, but to save money. So the Lusitania slowly steamed into U-boat patrolled waters without an escort. One of the officers present in the high command map room on that fateful day was Commander Joseph Kenworthy, who previously had been called upon by Churchill to submit a paper on what would be the political results of an ocean liner being sunk with American passengers aboard. 
He left the room in disgust at the cynicism of his, of his superiors. In 1927, in his book, The Freedom of the Seas, he wrote without further comment, The Lusitania was sent at considerably reduced speed into an area where a U-boat was known to be waiting and her escorts withdrawn. The German submarine, U-20, fired a single torpedo into the Lusitania that struck her starboard side. The U-20 readied a second torpedo, but there was a second and much larger explosion that blew the side off the cargo hold and sent the ship quickly to the bottom of the ocean. At the time, the Lusitania was one of the largest ships ever built, and it sank in less than 18 minutes. The propaganda machine capitalized on the tragedy. The sinking of the Lusitania became the rally point for the war. One effective ad simply said, Enlist, and featured a woman sinking underwater holding her baby. Almost two years later, with presidential, media, and sufficient public support, the U.S. Congress declared war on the Central Powers. Six months earlier, the military had already been preparing for war, but it was at this time that the purse strings fell open. Congress passed the War Loan Act, which extended a billion dollar credit to the Allies. Despite the influx of cash, the British were behind on their payments to the House of Morgan. Morgan presented the bill to the U.S. government for payment. The Treasury did not have enough spendable funds available. This problem was solved with help from Benjamin Strong of the Federal Reserve. They simply printed the money out of thin air and paid Morgan quietly in installments. G. Edward Griffin wrote, The banking cartel was able, through the operation of the Federal Reserve System, to create the money to give to England and France so they, in turn, could pay back the American banks, exactly as was done in World War II and again in the big bailout of the 1980s and 90s. It is true that, in 1917, the recently enacted income tax was useful for raising a sizable amount of revenue to conduct the war and also, as Beardsley Rummel pointed out a few years later, to take purchasing power away from the middle class. But the greatest source of funding came, as it always does in wartime, not from direct taxes, but from the hidden tax called inflation. Between 1915 and 1920, the money supply doubled from $20.6 billion to $39.8 billion. Conversely, during World War I, the purchasing power of the currency fell by almost 50%. That means Americans unknowingly paid to the government approximately one-half of every dollar that existed, and that was in addition to their taxes. This massive infusion of money was the process by which the Federal Reserve and member banks in concert with the U.S. Treasury creates money and credit, and it costs nothing to create. Yet the banks were able to collect interest on it all. U.S. Marine Corps Major General and two-time Medal of Honor recipient Smedley Butler aptly described war. War is a racket. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few, at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In World War I, a mere handful 
garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during the World War. When I think about this terrible tragedy, I wonder what it was like for the civilian pawn who spent their hard-earned money for a seat on the HMS Lusitania, with no knowledge of the plan for that fateful voyage. I think about the cold water for those who survived the blasts. Oh, it was a terrific explosion. A terrific one. And it sounds as if it was right near to. It frightened the life out of me. Oh, people pushing, shoving, to get up as high as they could, getting near the back. And I jumped. The boat was disappeared and all I could see was heads bobbing up and down and chairs, tables and things like that and people calling It's a story out. as old as time. Powerful people deceive, propagandize and ultimately use us for their own selfish ends. And for our part, by and large, we continue to follow. The Nazi Luftwaffe commander, Hermann Goring, once said, Of course the people don't want war, but after all, it's the leaders of the country who determine the policy. And it's always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it's a democracy, a fascist dictatorship, or a parliament, or a communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to do the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them that they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to greater danger. Thank you for listening and watching Thriller Vault.